Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to June the 21st, 2016. Not a lot that long ago, but it's, that's, you know, almost four years ago now. And it's going to be an interesting juxtaposition because the show itself was episode 1812 and it was called 12 Planks of Modern Survivalism Eight Years Later. And this was back for a while I was doing polling of the audience. Here's a list of subjects for the standalone shows for the month anyway. So you have about four shows a month y'all were picking through a, a poll. And um, this was like, the, I remember the month we did this, <clears throat> which again was June of 2016, this was the number one pick uh, in the poll. And it wasn't even close. It was like, there was this one, and then if you took the second place and doubled the number of votes for it, it... It, it almost got there. So like three and four were, were trailing well behind it. And I usually, I mean, to be fair, there was like 12 subjects I would put out. So it was, you know, the top out of the 12, and that's going to make the other ones falter as people split their votes between the remainder. But it was very, very uh, much something the audience wanted. And originally what I was going to do when I came up with the idea, because, you know, at this point I'm trying to come up with 10, 12 ideas for a show, and I just throw the titles up there and see what you want. And then when you pick, then I would figure out how to do it. So my original concept for the show was what I'll do is I'll go through and I'll say, this is what I meant when I said, and this is how that has changed. And as I thought about that, I'm like, well, that's going to be a pretty damn boring show. Really, it is. So... What I decided to do was I'll just take the 12 planks as single sentences and, and make a list of them. And then with no notes, I would go through and I would present the 12 planks. And I think we found that they changed a little bit as my perspective has changed, as my knowledge has changed, and I've gained knowledge in certain areas and all. But they pretty much remained fairly constant. And I think that has a lot to do with how they were developed anyway. And I tried to develop them as pieces of wisdom. And I, it's hard for me to say that because in, in spite of the fact that I'm boisterous and outgoing and whatever, and I, you know, I put on a persona when I do this show, I'm actually a pretty humble person. So I'll say things with a lot of confidence right up until the point that I'm saying them about me. And I'll, I'll say things with confidence like, this weekend I dug a great big giant hole for a 250-gallon tank that was six foot by eight and a half foot, and I did it in one go and I got it perfectly level. Right, But I'm not going to say I'm that good. My eye is that good, baby, uh, to my friends. right? But the reality is like I got lucky when I did that. But I'll say I did that because I did that. When I try to um, say something like I put together 12 pieces of wisdom, I realize how that can sound arrogant. And in spite of the fact that I may come off as that at times, I'm not. So when I, when I say something like that, what I mean is I gave it my best effort. And I gave it my best effort coming from a piece of advice that I, I took a lot of in the business world. And it's I decided to bring it up today. I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this before, but this was one of the guiding tenets of wisdom. that comes from a military leader that will be our quote of the day for new content on this show. Um, that I have, like I heard when I was like 17 years old, before I was even in the military myself. And it kind of hit me. And 
then as I progress, you know, I kind of for you forget things like that. Like, oh, wow, that's really profound. And then you forget it. And then you go through your life, and then you, you start to actually build a career. So, you, you know, you go from packing boxes in a warehouse where things like this are just not, you don't have time for them in your mind. You just try to survive. To where you become fairly successful in business, you end up in, in a management position, and you start going back through, like, hey, I need to build myself as a leader again, you know. And uh, this, of course, is after my military experience. And, all, and as I'm going through certain things, I, I found this quote again. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that. And it was from General Patton. And he said something that the reason I decided to bring it up today is we're like doing a juxtaposition of a juxtaposition. So we're taking the, the modern survival philosophy show and saying eight years later, here's, here's what it looks like now. But we're also saying now four years later, we're just going to go back and look what it looked like eight years ago. So now it's 12. Kind of crazy, huh? Well, Patton's quote here is a juxtaposition if you understand the military. So let me give you the quote. Never tell people how to do things. Tell them what to do, and they will surprise you with their ingenuity. George S. Patton. And that is exactly how I tried to build the 12 planks of modern survivalism. Here are the things you need to know and understand and be able to do. Now, the, And the last plank, plank 12, do it your way. Here's everything you need to know. Do it your way. Because if I tell you how to do it, you're going to go along until you hit the one step in the process that you disagree with. And you might get to the first one and leave it out and keep going. But what will probably happen is within one or two of those, you'll just quit. And you'll never complete setting your life up in a modern survivalist way. And then when something like COVID hits, you're screwed. Even though eight years ago, maybe you were like on board the, the, the prepper train. Because somebody told you exactly what you were supposed to do and some of it didn't jive with you, you end up eight years later, you should have been one of the most prepared, you end up being one of the least prepared. And I didn't want that to happen. So I tried to formulate the philosophy as core pieces of wisdom. Here's the things you need to think about, understand. This is the places you need to address. And then give people the total freedom to figure out within my budget, my risk tolerance, where I live, what's most likely to threaten me, how I shore up my primary survival needs. And I did it from this framework of General Patton that's always stayed with me. Now, here's the juxtaposition that many of you, that when I said that, you're like, yeah, but your eyes also rolled. Maybe one eye was like focused and the other eye rolled. It looked like you were having a seizure because you see the conflict here, don't you? If you understand the military. So I go into the military as a young man. I was 17 when I joined the Army. And within a couple weeks of being at basic training, talk about being told how to do things, how to fold your underwear. And yes, they check with a tape measure. And if you're wrong, they throw all your shit on the floor. How to make your bed. And if, if the seam is not exactly the way it's supposed to be on the blanket, you come back from training all day. And the first thing you have to do is remake your bed because your mattress is literally thrown out of the squad bay into the, 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 uh, the courtyard below. And if you're on the second floor, which we were, that sucks. Um, how to shave. I mean, about the only thing that they don't tell you exactly how to do when you join the Army is how to wipe your ass. I mean, it's, it, it's, that's about the, the point where they're like, okay, you can do this on your own. How to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. We even had a thing called Fat Buddy Skinny Buddy. Back then, I was a skinny buddy. And that meant I had a buddy when I went to eat. 
And since he was considered a fat buddy and he needed to lose some weight, once my tray was empty, I could eat any of his food I wanted to, and he wasn't allowed to say or do anything about it. Talk about being told how to do things. How to disassemble a rifle. You know, it's not just, can you take this rifle apart and put it back together in two minutes? There is a order that that happens in. You do that in that order, or it's wrong. Everything you do, you are told how to do it, how to walk, how to talk, how to act, how to stand. You cannot put, while you are in uniform, and you are in the army anyway, you cannot put your hands in your pockets. Unless you are getting something out. You have a, a seconds of limitation before you are wrong. Your hands were in your pockets too long. Anybody that was in the army, and I don't know how things are today. I imagine this hasn't changed much, the pocket things. But anybody that was in the army in the 80s, 90s, I'm sure you remember this phrase. Soldier, take off your Air Force gloves. Because your hands are in your pocket. Those are Air Force gloves. Air Force puts their hands in their pockets. We do not put our hands in our pockets. You do not carry an umbrella when you are in the Army. Especially in a battle dress uniform, you absolutely do not carry an umbrella. You get wet. You can wear the overcoat they give you if it's part of the uniform of the day, but then you're soaking wet from your knees down. You're probably wetter from your knees down than you would have been had you not worn it, depending on the type of rain you're in. When you're in training, you are told when to wake up, when to go to sleep. When you go to guard duty, you are told exactly what gear to bring and exactly what configuration, and you are inspected to ensure that that gear matches that protocol. And that is not just when you are in training. That is when you are a seven-year veteran and you are a sergeant. You are inspected. You're expected to inspect your, you're expected to inspect your troops under your command on that guard detail, but you are inspected before that guard detail. If you pull what's called charge of quarters as an NCO, you are told exactly how to do that job. So how the hell does Patton get off with this? And I imagine the United States Army of the 1930s and 40s, leading up to and going through World War II, probably had more discipline, not less, than the Army I served in in the early 1990s. How does this work? Well, when you and, and those of you in the military just... That eye that rolled, maybe you also already pulled it back and said, oh, I get it. See, what we do in the military is we take a person and we reconfigure them into a soldier or a marine or an airman or a seaman. Don't laugh at that. It's not funny. Yeah, it is. We can make fun of the Navy. It's all right. And um, there's a point, though, that that training has been given. And that soldier, we'll stick with soldier because we'll talk about Army here because it's what I know, has been given all the training that a soldier is expected to have at that level. You are a private first class. You have a year in as service. There are things that you are expected to be able to do and know how to do them. Now I'm going to give you a directive. Take what you know and go get it done. I'm not going to judge how you do it. I might test you at times. We have skills testing in the military. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to have skills testing, and I'm going to judge your procedure when you do that skills test. But when I give you a directive, unless there's overriding things. Well, I was a mechanic. When I was working on a truck, it was expected that I would have TM 92320-209-20P 
or, or, or dash 20, I'm sorry, 20p is the parse manual, dash 20, sitting on the, on the, on the uh, fender or somewhere of the deuce and a half, if I remember my TMs right, that's a TM for a deuce and a half. And I would have that TM, and it would be open to something relevant to what I was doing. I don't care if I change the oil in that damn truck a 100,000 times, it would be sitting there on the procedure for oil change. But if it was there, I never had a maintenance NCO or a, a battalion motor officer or anything out come out and go, hey, soldier, exactly which step are you on? Exactly which step are you on here in this TM? Are you doing it exactly? No, it was just expected I had the TM available to me. And there's so many other places where it goes from there. So when Patton was saying this, he was talking about having a well-trained group of people. And you knew that they had this core knowledge. And then you send them out. Lieutenant, take your platoon and secure this location on the map. This is the information you need to know so that you can do your job. This other platoon is going to be coming in here This is where they're expecting. These are your contingencies. This is what you do if they don't get there on time. Okay, bye. And that, let's say, major that gave that command, or that colonel that gave that command, or even that captain that gave that command, knows what that lieutenant knows, knows how many NCOs he has, knows what they're exposed to know, knows how many corporals, junior NCOs are under there, knows how many privates, the strength of that unit, the supplies that they have, how long they can last, and at that point, i got to let go. I need this location secured. Bye. See you. Because I know when that lieutenant leaves with his platoon that whatever they encounter will not match exactly what Intel told me they will find. And they will need to improvise, adapt, and overcome to get to that objective that I have given them. And at that point, I have to let go and delegate. And if they fail, they fail. And I have to have a plan for if they fail. I have to know what failure looks like. I have to know what success looks like. And I have to know what everything in the gradient between the two extremes looks like. But I have to let go. When you run a company, a real company, a corporation in the real world, that's what you have to do. You can't bring some idiot in off the street that's never done the job before and say, hey, you know what I need you to do is assemble me a database of the most probable uh, contacts that we should be contacting with this uh, marketing piece. That would be one example. I can't just bring somebody in that doesn't have the training and do that with them. I either have to find somebody that has enough training that I expect that I can give that directive, or I have to bring that person into my organization. I have to put them into a situation where they are shepherded by someone that knows how to do those things in the procedure that my company does them. And then I have to say, go. But like when I was hired into my first big regional sales job, I had never traveled for sales before. I had a successful track record in selling in one market, Dallas-Fort Worth, for structured cabling. And my first job from there was selling uh, computer hardware, which is a little bit different. And I went from DFW being the main place that I did my operations in to a five-state area that represented about 20% of the land mass of the United States of America. I got two weeks of training, and it was all on product. It was expected that I knew how to sell. And then I was asked for a, a sales plan. My boss, Frank Madrin, said, put together a sales plan. Send it to me. 
And there were points at it. He said, you know, I think you could tighten up on this. I think this sector is going to wane a little bit, maybe do that. He didn't tell me how to do it. Rewrite the plan. Send it back to me. This looks good. I expect you to make your numbers. See you. Same thing. Why? Because I knew how to sell. And he figured, you'll figure everything else out. And I'm not going to tell you your market. I'm from California. How the hell do I know how to talk to somebody in rural Texas? I don't. I know I don't. I hired someone that does. Go get that business down there at that rural telecom. Go do it. Go get that expanding shale and gas business, even back then. Go do it. And as long as it got done, I didn't hear anything about it. This is the mentality that you have to have in the world to be successful if you're going to rely on more than just yourself. And it is difficult. And the smaller your organization, like a family or a family business, the harder it is to do. Because there's a tendency to want to grab onto the things that you know you can control and control those things. But that individual that you are taking those things from to control them will never develop to even a fraction of your ability, assuming you're actually good at it, if you don't get out of the way and let them. You can guide them, you can coach them, you can help them, you can teach them, you can give them the fundamental underlying skills through training that does tell them how to do these things. This is how you filter data in Excel. There's actually a bunch of ways to do it, but here's one of them. This is what the results should look like. Now let me see you do it. Okay, now show me how to do it. Okay, I believe you know how to do it. Now go get me the freaking data. And when you bring me the data, I'll know if you screwed it up because I'll look at the data. I don't even need to look at how. And at that point, since I know you know how, and I, I looked at your results, I don't give a shit anymore how. As long as that data that keeps coming to me is accurate, I can make good decisions on it. What does that have to do with modern survival philosophy and the 12 planks that we're revisiting today that originated 12 years ago? This is how I built the modern survival philosophy from the beginning. I will give you the knowledge that you need to assess the risks in your life in the primary areas where people get hurt when disasters occur. And then I will take on, from that point forward, informing you and educating you of the, of the skill sets, the things that you can buy, the things that you can, you can make, the mindset that you need to have. I will give you as much technical knowledge as you want to go along with the philosophy. You take the things that you want to use, and you shore up the things that you need to have in the way that you see fit, and I will get out of your way. And I will always be here to guide you, to coach you, to help you, to inform you, to entertain you, and to keep you motivated. But I will not tell you how to prepare your household, because my household and your household do not look the same. If I tell you to go out and get three freezers and a generator... Maybe you don't have room for three freezers because you live in an apartment building. If I tell you to go to the lowest, lowest floor in your home, if there's a tornado in your area, and you live on the third floor of an apartment, that doesn't work. You don't have a lowest floor in your home unless you have a neighbor who will let you in if you knock on their door. You need another plan. But if I tell you how to... Be aware of severe weather threats in your area. Whatever your plan is, you can enact it. That is where this all came from. That is where the format of this came from. With that, let's go ahead now and rewind back uh, about four years ago to June the 21st, 
2020. And let me remind you, as always, you can always help support this show and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at T-SPAS. And I'm not going to say a lot about the product of the day. I'm just going to mention it, and I'm bringing it back for the third time in only about three weeks. And it's the Sacred 7 mushroom uh, stuff. The reason I'm bringing it back is the feedback has been amazing on it. Everybody has sent me emails thanking me for even letting them know that it exists. Uh, the day, I think because of the study that's in the write-up that Nurse Amy sent me, which is why I started using it, when people, even if they don't read the whole study, if they look at that study and they understand what these things can possibly do for us and how affordable it is, people are like, that is something I want to add to my regimen of keeping my health up. And I'll tell you one thing. Your health is a big part of a modern survival philosophy. What I've learned over the years is when I've been injured and hurt or whatever, how much I do and how there needs to be procedures for those things. Keeping your health up is huge. And I think this is an easy, affordable way to do it. So remember, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Check out today's item of the day. If you have not done so yet, get on our uh, daily mail. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on subscribe. Fill out one simple form. I will never share your information. And now here we go back. Uh, about six years ago, Originally, June the 21st, 2016, episode 1812, The Twelve Planks of Modern Survivalism, eight years later, and today, that's 12 years later. So again, Twelve Planks of Modern Survivalism, um, th these are like the shortened versions of them, like the, the bullet point versions of them, and I'm just going to go through them real quick. Prepare for everything, including nothing going wrong. Dead is cancer, kill it. Grow and produce some of your own food. Taxes theft. Pay only what you must. Stored food is a safe investment. Understand disaster probability and commonality. Green energy is for independence, not saving polar bears. Own land and make it produce. Utilize pragmatic preparations. Have a means of defense. Have full documentation for any disaster need. Develop your own plan. So let's go through those, uh, should we? Let's start out with the, the first one, which is, you know, the bullet point is prepare for everything, including nothing going wrong. And, and here's what I actually mean more deeply about that. Everything you do to prepare for emergencies, disasters, economic turmoil should be blended in your life in a way that improves your life, even if nothing disastrous ever occurs. And, and we can see this through some of the other tenants. But basically what I'm saying is, as, as a prepper in the modern age, We should not be overly reactive. We should not be preparing for uh, the, the fact that some type of uh, you know uh, ridiculous level of disaster is going to occur, and we're all going to live in a hole in the ground. And then when we come out of that hole, all our debts will be erased. Everything will be better. And I, I think there's a lot of people in the prepping industry that actually believe that if we had the, the great economic collapse or we had some sort of major cleansing, that society as it rebuilt itself would be better off. And, and, and the reality is, it is not. So when we talk about things later today, like paying off your debt, if you pay your debt off and then there is no economic disaster, if you don't lose your job, etc., you're still better off. If you start growing your own food and then you're eating higher quality food and spending less money and getting exercise, you're still better off, even if you never need it. If we work for energy independence, see, it's what I'm saying. Every single one of these tenants springboards off this keystone. And if, if we are going to do something that only pays off if the shit hits the fan, then we should figure out how to do it differently so that it does benefit us now, or we should actually put it at the, the end of the list. 
because uh, we all have limitations in space, money, and time. Those are your three biggest limits in your life, space, money, and time. So no matter how much food you can afford to buy, you have a spatial limit to where you can place it. No matter how much space you have, you have a financial limit to how much money you can put into it. And if we take money and we overspend on storing food, we reduce the amount we have to do other things that are good preparedness things. And if we put only food into our space, then we reduce the space that we have for other things. And so we have to think holistically in everything that we do here. And if we don't, we get burned. We absolutely will get burned every single time. Because the odds that the shit will hit the fan tomorrow are much lower than the odds that they won't. So when we, I, I, you know, when I when I started doing this, I saw people doing crazy shit like they were getting as much credit card uh, credit as they could get their hands on. They get four, before they started spending it, right? They'd get all of it they could. They, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars worth of credit card debt, and then they were going to go out and buy silver with it, and say, screw it, I'm just not paying the debt back. And when the shit hits the fan, the silver will be worth so much money, and the debts won't matter because they'll be trying to collect everybody's debts, and they can't get it because it's credit card debt anyway, and I'll have silver and I'll be rich. Well, this is foolish. It's also a one-direction plan. It only works if the shit hits the fan and silver goes through the roof. And if nothing goes wrong, it literally is what goes wrong for you and destroys your life. So... so We have to always balance every decision with the, the, the following questions. How does this help me right now today? How does it help me over the next year or two years if everything pretty much stays static the way that it is? How does it help me if we have minimal problems? How does it help me if we have maximum problems? And we set our priorities on that. Because if we do things like we, we store up, five years worth of rice and beans. We have a lot of money taken up. We have a lot of space taken up. We have a, a food commodity that we're really not that happy about eating. And we've only prepared for the end of the world as we know it in totality. And the day that Dad loses his job, those rice and beans can help us a bit, but only so much. Where if we'd been more holistic with our approach, Dad losing a job, Mom losing a job, a family member dying or being in a serious accident or having a house burned down, we would be much more able to recover. So we just have to stick with that cornerstone. And we always ask ourselves when we're doing something because we say it's for preparedness, what will this do for me if nothing goes wrong? And if the answer is nothing, then there's probably something else that would benefit you if something went wrong and benefit you today. And until you run out of those actions and those things, we don't do the things that are only for complete and total disaster. I mean, we, we can do this with anything, a bug out bag. Well, it's only in case there's a disaster, we run away, 72 hour kit, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, I've used my, my bug out bag tons over eight years. Tons. And I'm not bugged out once. Simple things. First aid kits, somebody's hurt. If I have my bug out bag in my vehicle, there's a first aid kit. At a, at a barbecue, everybody's getting swatted by mosquitoes, nobody has insect repellent, got it in my bug out bag. So even things that look like they're only for disasters, if we think right, because it's the thinking that matters. Um, the next one, debt is cancer, kill it. Debt is financial cancer. Uh, my original article said minimize it, pay it off early, and stay away from credit cards. And I still believe that to a large degree. Here, here's how I feel that debt is cancer. If we take two people, okay, Bob and Sam, and Bob 
goes through college or school or whatever, goes straight to work, I don't care what he does, but Bob busts his ass and he doesn't take student loans, or if he does, they're very, very minimal. They're paid off within a couple of years out of getting out of school. And Sam does exactly what the system tells him to. He goes to college, he gets his degree, he comes out of school with you know $30,000, $40,000 worth of debt. He goes on income-based repayment, so his payments are very low. This means he'll have his debt around so long, uh, he might as well name it, because the first dog he buys will die before he's done paying his debt off. And he marries someone who has taken the same path. Bob marries someone who's taken his path. These two couples now begin their lives. Um, Sam goes out, and because he's taken the student loan debt and gotten a good job, and he's servicing his debt, as seen fit, his credit rating is really high, so he goes out and buys an expensive house. Bob says, you know what, honey, we're going we're gonna to knuckle down, we're going to rent for a couple more years, we're going to save up, we're going to put a healthy down payment, we're going to buy our first house, we're going to buy a little bit more moderate, below our means, and we are going to, to do the best we can with it, but we are not going to extend ourselves. And they do that. And then, of course, we need a car. So, you know, Sam goes out and buys the, the nice car. His wife gets a SUV to cart the kids around, even though she's not pregnant yet. I mean, I've seen people do this shit. Um, you know, Bob and his wife, they drive a little bit older cars. Maybe they have one new vehicle, and they keep it 10 years. And they do their thing. As they both have kids, they, you know, Bob puts his kids into sports and stuff like that, but with limits. Uh, and they actually can do quite a bit because they're starting to actually reap the rewards of living this common sense lifestyle. But Sam is servicing so much debt that he really can't afford all of the stuff that his kids are doing. But instead, he overcompensates. I know people in my life to do this. The kids are in everything. It's, it's very expensive. They're always running around. They never have any time. But about 15 years into this, when both of them are, let's say, 35 to 40 years old, If you look at them financially, Sam looks much more financially healthy than Bob to the outsider just looking at where they live, what they drive, what their kids do, how they're dressed, all of those things, what clubs they're in, etc. Ten more years into it, so now we're like 45 to 50 on both sides. Bob and his family are hitting their complete stride. They're heading for early retirement. They have no debt load whatsoever. They're able to save money. They're able to do the things they want. Now maybe they have a few nicer things, but they're paid for cash. They keep them a little bit longer. They make smart decisions. Over here on the other side, Sam and his wife have their hands in their face, and they're realizing you're supposed to retire somewhere around 60, 65, and there's no way in hell it's going to happen. Probably one or both of them have decided they absolutely hate their jobs, but they can't leave because they have too much time in now, and they're hoping for a retirement. And it's slowly eating away at them. And they start to do the math, and they realize that they're going to retire and have, if they keep living the way they are, as much or more debt than they have right now, though their income is going to be drastically reduced. And by the way, since they've thrown everything into their kids with money and time and activities and stuff like that, instead of living more to their means and actually being forced to spend more time together doing things together, they've been living vicariously through their children. Guys, I can't tell you how many people I know exactly like this. And as the kids go off and take their own cancer debt on, there's this hole, and then there's this resentment, and there's this debt And both sides look at each other and realize we did this together, but both feel like the other one did it.
and they end up miserable and many times divorced, late in life divorces, because once the kids are gone, that's why we were really staying together, and even if they stay together, they end up retired with no money and broke and still paying for shit that they used 30 years ago. Bob ends up really, really solid with almost everything that he's ever purchased in his life fully paid for by now. Maybe he's gone up in house once or twice, but at this point he's able to pay his house off. He has a very low payment because of the amortization of the loan and inflation. And he's healthy and happy and looking great, and Sam looks miserable. This is how cancer works. You can have two people side by side. One can look healthier than the other, but if the cancer is already growing inside them, it metastasizes, and by the time you see it, it can be too late. This is why debt is cancer. This is why you have to get out of debt. This is why you have to eliminate debt. The credit card thing. People think I've softened on it because like, I have admitted that I now have a credit card, and there are certain situations in which I would advocate the use of the credit card. Very expensive purchases online, uh, you have credit card protections, and uh, things like renting a car. And renting a car is what did it for us. Renting a car pushed me over the edge. Because I had for years had people tell me, well, Jack, I can't rent a car without, I'm like, bullshit, I do it all the time. And this is back when I traveled a lot more than I do now. We were traveling five, six times a year at least, going to airports, renting a car. And I'd always use my debit card. It was about two years ago was the first time it ever was an issue. It cost me almost $500 more for that car than if I had had a credit card. And uh, But what that tells you is I was living exactly what I was teaching. I did not have credit cards. So we came home, and I told Dorothy, get us a couple credit cards. Get two different ones so that you know we have options, and fine. And they basically are nothing but for that. Um, and as far as the cash back argument, guys, go get yourself a PayPal debit card, debit credit card, and then go activate it and get 1% back every time you sign. So run it as a credit card, you get 1% cash back. And check with your local banks. A lot of local banks have credit debit cards that have, they incentivize you to use it as a credit card, instead of a debit card, by giving you cash back. So there are ways to do it. You want to play the airline's mile and all this? Go ahead. But the reality is most people would be better served keeping credit cards away from themselves. You want to really keep your credit card safe from being abused? Uh, freeze it in a five-pound block of ice in the center. And only thaw it out if you really, 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 really need it. Because you're going on vacation and you need it for your rental car. Uh, it might be that necessary for some people. But one way or another, get rid of the freaking debt out of your life. Get it out of your life, because it will ruin you. Um, the next one is grow and produce some of your own food. The reality is growing your own food is for everyone, not just for people that want organic fruits and vegetables. When you produce your own food, even as little as 10% of what you use, it reduces your dependence on the system. And if nothing else, gardening is good for your emotional, physical health and increases the value of your property. Every home that I've ever sold, the people that looked at it went, oh, there's a garden already here. People think When people buy a house, they think they're going to put a garden in even if they're not going to. They think they're going to garden even if they're not going to be successful. They believe that they're going to be able to garden even if they've never done it before. Almost everybody I know that's ever bought a house, like, I'm going to put a garden there. Most people, when I go back and look a few years later, there's no garden there. It was wishful thinking. Still makes your house more attractive if you have a nice garden in so just from resale value alone, if you raise beds or something like that, makes people more likely to want to buy your house. So, so we're back to, again, square one. We just did it with debt. Now we're doing it with growing your own food. No matter what, 
if there's no apocalypse, if there's no zombies, if there's no cats and dogs living together having puppy kittens or whatever your version of the shit hitting the fan is, you are better off growing a garden than not growing a garden. You'll eat better, you get more exercise. And I think one of the big things it does for you, especially as a parent, is it allows you to teach your children where the hell food comes from. It also puts you in touch with the reality of a food supply network so that you don't become falsely dependent upon it. You don't become falsely confident in it. If you become a gardener, you will be more likely to store food, not just the surplus you produce, but you'll be more likely to think like a prepper because you'll have failures, because you'll have a great, big, beautiful plant, and you'll think this is going to produce great this year, and you go out two days later and it'll be eaten to the ground. You go, what the hell happened? You realize that happens to farmers every day. There'll be times when you have great years. There'll be times when you have bad years, great years for one thing, bad years for other things. But by just getting your hands in the dirt and feeling what it's like to actually produce your own food, you'll also find the most important thing that you can find in this journey, freedom. Growing your own food puts you in touch with the freedom that we have been separated with as a people. We have been, we have been taught to be domesticated cattle is really what we've been taught to be. Your food comes from the store. Your gas comes from a gas station, right? Your alcohol comes from an alcohol store. Maybe if you live in a free state, you can get it in the grocery store. But everything that you use in your life, you have to go somewhere to get it or pay someone to bring it to you. Now, I'm a modern survivalist. I am not opposed to these conveniences. If I want to make a, a margarita, I'm not going to distill my own tequila, It's not worth the effort. There are systems in place that do a better job of that than I do. But I understand that I can make my own apple cider. I can actually distill my own whiskey, even though I'm not supposed to. But I know how to do it if I had to. I might make some fuel that might accidentally spill in my mouth or something like that. You guys get my point. Well, growing your own food gets this mindset supercharged. You start to realize, I actually have resources here. I have the ability to produce here. And really growing your own food is one of several things that we do that's like printing your own money. If you think about just something like a, cu a cucumber plant, let's say a, a single cucumber vine over a long growing season can produce 40 cucumbers. Let's call it 20 cucumbers. And let's say cucumbers sell for 50 cents a piece. Okay, So it's 10 bucks out of one vine because you usually plant quite a few of them. So 10 bucks worth of cucumbers. And, and most people that grow cucumbers know the number's way higher than that. But let's just call it 10 bucks. A package of cucumber seeds probably costs a dollar. Okay. And, you know, they'll, let's just say that the, the cost of the seed is a dime, which is preposterously high. You, you get a cucumber seed for less than a dime. Uh, if you have that, then you have 10 cents becoming $10. Let that sink in for a minute to understand why growing your own food is so important. It's profitable. It's profitable to grow your own food. Now, it might be in the first couple of years that you're at a break-even or even a loss because you're learning what you're doing, you're learning what inputs you need, you're learning about fertility, you're, you're putting in beds, maybe you're bringing in material. A lot of you are blessed, and you live in places with decent soils where you can basically put a garden in for the cost of shovel time. But, but others live in places where they're going to have to use soil amendments, maybe rock minerals, uh, maybe uh, mulches, things like that, uh, organic fertilizers, etc. And there may be a cost up front, but it's an investment that pays dividends for years, and it pays dividends in a direct return of food, 
and it pays dividends in a long-term return of increasing property values, and it pays dividends in a super long-term way of being able to share these concepts and education with your children, your grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces, etc. Because it really makes an impact on people when you share food with them. Next, taxes theft. I love that I said taxes theft eight years ago in my article, my original article on this. Because it's kind of a big thing now. If you haven't paid attention on Facebook, it's like everywhere. Taxation is theft. There's memes after memes after memes. But I said this back in 2008, and trust me, I was saying it a hell of a long time before that. But tax is theft. The best way to combat is to understand every legal deduction you can take or create. In general, I think the system is bad. But when it comes to taxation, either learn the system or hire a damn good accountant to work it for you. Every dollar you keep can be used to improve your self-sufficiency. Every dollar taken from you can be used to make you dependent on the system, your dependence on the system even stronger. Okay? And what I mean by that is most people think only one direction with this, this knife. This is a two-edged knife. The government taxes you. And so let's say they tax you $1. So what most people get, because it's very easy to feel the loss of money. I had a dollar, and now I don't. They took it away from me. Okay? Fine. And absolutely, if you have that dollar, that dollar can work for you instead of for them. But my question to you then is, what do they do with your dollar? What does the government do with your dollars? How much of what the government's doing do you approve of with your dollars? How much of what the government does with your money do you think is a good thing? Or let me put it to you a totally different way. Are there things the government is doing with your dollars that you find morally reprehensible? I mean, just... In your gut, you find them morally reprehensible. Like, if there was any way you could prevent them from doing it, you would. Well, don't give them your dollar. Let me put it to you another way, this, this sword cuts in both directions. Are there things your government does with your money that oppress your rights and freedoms and get in the way of you doing what you want to do? And I don't just mean the federal level. You know, the Department of Making You Sad that comes out, the code enforcement people and stuff like that, that's never the federal government. I've never seen a federal property inspector yet, myself. Maybe one day we will. I'm sure some people in certain situations have. But in general, who comes out and writes you up because your shed's in the easement or something stupid like that? The local official. Well, where do they get their money? There's taxes upon taxes, and the taxes are taxed. And every time a penny leaves your pocket and goes into the coffers of government at any level... That is more ammunition for them to further infringe on your rights. So not only do you not have that money to work for your own freedom, someone else has it to take it away from you. This is why it's imperative. I just don't believe that the government's entitled to my money at all. That's just, I'm going to start out with that. I don't believe there's any such thing as a fair tax. I don't think there's any such thing as a legitimate tax. I think there could totally be a legitimate fee for a voluntary service. Totally okay with that. I am totally okay with that. But a tax means my money was taken without my consent, and I really, no matter the, the, the pantomime of voting, get no say in how that money is actually used. Because if I did, shit would be done a lot differently. Just the product of our education system shows me I have no say-so in how my property taxes are spent, at least the portion, about 40% of them, that are spent on schools. And when I look at how hospitals are run and the money that's coming out of my property taxes for that, 
I don't get a lot of say in that either. I really don't. And you don't either. And when I look at all the different things our government is doing, from restricting where you can grow your own food and where you can't, to where the hell you can own a chicken or not, to um, what kind of wood stove you can have. And you can just go on and on. Every place I see them acting, they are acting against my interest. So every dollar of mine they have, I give them more power to take from me. Conversely, what I have, I can then use to finagle and work around the system, buy a large enough piece of property, be left alone, whatever it is, it's my strategy. You have to have your own strategy here. And there are many ways to do this. And I can't get into tax strategy here today because it's complex. I could probably do weeks on just tax strategy alone. But get a damn good accountant. If you get a good accountant, put them on a scale, and then figure they're worth about that same amount in gold, at least silver. Because that's what they can be worth to you over a lifetime if you have a good, solid account that knows how to work tax code to your advantage. This is something I want you to understand. There's almost 80,000 pages in our ta federal tax code. Just the federal tax code. 80,000. Now, what most people think is, wow, that's onerous. It is, but most of those pages tell you how to not pay taxes. Have you ever thought about it that way before? Most of the tax code is how you can avoid taxes. Because the part about what you pay is very simple. You make a certain amount of money, okay? And then after you make that certain amount of money, you fall into different brackets, and those create an effective tax bracket of how much total percentage you're going to pay out of your, your taxes. We could write that up on a single sheet of paper. We really could. I mean, even the old-fashioned, remember the books you had to go get at the post office? I mean, they were still pretty thin. And that was pretty much, how do you pay? The other 78,000 pages are how do you not pay? Now, who do you think wrote those laws? Congressmen. Congressmen wrote those laws for themselves. I said yesterday on the show, there's actually a piece of the tax code. There's a line item on a form. If you rent your house for profit for 14 days or less a year, you can keep the money tax-free. Because once, I think it was a senator, wanted that, so he got that done. So the problem, the, the, the thing is they write this shit to benefit themselves. They write this shit to benefit the rich. But it benefits anybody that reads it and understands it, interprets it, and structures your life the right way. Now, this is much easier to do if you own a business. I'm, I'm not going to lie about that. This is much easier to do if you own a business. But anybody can at least file the long form and take all deductions you're entitled to. And then learn about deductions and set up your life so that those deductions that no, don't apply to you now do apply to you. Taxes theft. Pay only what you must. The next one is stored food is a safe investment. Um, food stored is actually an exceptional investment. Food is increasing in cost faster than just about any investment right now, and certainly faster than the rate of inflation. You simply can't lose by storing additional food that you will use on a regular basis, and that's the key. If all we do is fill up an extra, ba uh, extra bedroom or half a basement with rice and beans and MREs, we are not practicing food storage in the right way. And it's not going to help us if nothing goes wrong. So we know we're doing it wrong. If we start out with a very simple deep pantry approach using what we call copy canning, and we just say canning, it can be any goods that are shelf-stable, or even if you have a chest freezer and you put a food rotation system into your freezer, meats and other things like that, this can all work. And all that means is if we go to the store and we buy 
I'm just going to call it uh, box A. Because whatever item you buy is what's most important. So box A uh, of stuff. And uh, we normally buy one box of that uh, a week when we go grocery shopping. It's a staple. We use it all the time in a shelf stable. So now we go to the store and we buy two box A's instead of one. That's it. We come home and next week when we go to the store or you know, if we do it every two weeks, whatever frequency we go, let's buy one extra one. And we put it in our pantry and we do it just like they do it at the grocery store. The, new, the newest item to the rear and the, and the oldest item to the front. So every time we come home with extras, we pull everything forward and stick it in the back. When we get, let's say, 10 weeks worth, two months worth, whatever our first target is of that item, we stop buying two and we go back to buying one. And then we're using one and replacing one and using one and replacing one. If we happen to use two, we buy two. We buy whatever we use. Back to front. Back to front. We move on to box B. We do it again. If we have the budget for it, we do A and B at the same time until they build up. Then we do C and D until they build up. Then we do E and F until they build up. And we just keep doing that. And if we do that, the average household, if you do that for about six to eight months, at the end of that six to eight month period with almost no pain to your budget, unless you're living on the knife's edge, which there's other ways to fix that we'll talk about later today, with almost no pain, without almost even noticing it, because we're talking about small dollar items a little at a time, You'll end up with two months of almost everything that you regularly use in your house. And you all, and then you can go straight back. If your two months is good for you, straight back to buying whatever you use and replace, buy 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 and replace. Buy and replace. And you're never out. And if something goes on sale, you buy the shit out of it. You stock it really deep. You wear it down to your reserve number and you go back to one to one replacement. That's it. If you do that, And you, you expand that into, like I said, stuff that you can store in your freezer and stuff like that. Get a good chest freezer, or I actually like stand-up freezers better because I think they're easier to organize. Um, even though they do have less efficiency when you open the door, the cold comes out. I think that I don't spend that much time in my deep freezer. So I think the, the fact that stuff doesn't get buried and lost and disappear works better in a stand-up freezer. Um, if you do that six months to a year maximum, you'll have two months of food on hand all the time. And if that's enough for you in your mind, if two months of reserves is enough for you, you can go back to the way things were before that and only buy during opportunity buys, coupons, etc. We stack, stock up deep, let our reserves come back down to our, our, our defined reserve, and go back to it. That is so simple. There's no excuse for not every family in America doing this. Again, unless you are financially at such a pain point that you literally are out of money every week right before for your pay. And you've got to fix other shit if that's going on. Because your life is, if you're in that situation, you have to reevaluate the way you're living, what you're spending, etc. And, and I don't mean to minimize that here because, guys, I remember when I was really young and I had this shitty apartment and I worked my ass off. And I, it was just, I mean, to pay for my truck, my insurance, my electric bill, my food, and my apartment and be able to go drink a couple beers a week, I mean, it was what I had. And you have to work through that point in your life. You really do. And even in that situation, you know, I had a truck. It wasn't a really nice, expensive truck, but it was a new truck I should have never bought. But my first fiancé talked me into it. I had a boat I should have never bought. It was only like a $120 payment, but it was $120 I really didn't need to be spending. My, my first fiancé talked me into buying it. You know, if I didn't have those two things, I would have been a lot better off, even at that point. And, you know, what I ended up doing was working through it, but... When I look back at it now, mathematically, it may have made more sense to get out from under them. It really may have. But I didn't do that. So we all work through that point in time in our life. 
But if, if we are anywhere where we have a few extra bucks beyond our basic savings and all, we can do food storage almost painlessly. And then once we get to two months, three months, for most people, that's all you need. And then we can adjunct that with some long-term storables. That's where we can bring in the mountain house, the rice, the beans, the pasta, if, if we're going to do that, or other long-term storables, or start gardening to the point that we can actually build up long-term storables, foraging, holistic food storage. If you just put holistic food storage into the site, if you've never heard my shows on it, I go through all of this. And all of that ends up being an investment. This is why. If we do it that way, that two boxes you bought, you were going to buy that second box anyway. You were just going to buy it next week. And if we do that and we couple it with opportunity buys, like sales, coupons, etc., two-for-ones, then we end up paying less overall by amateurizing our total expenditure on food. And even if it's only a couple hundred dollars a year in total savings, it's a couple hundred dollars that you didn't have that can now be in your retirement or do other things for you. And as you actually adjust this into your life the right way, it becomes seamless. You don't even think about it anymore. All right, so that's, that's just the way that one is. And then the next one is understand disaster probability and commonality. This might be actually, other than the, the keystone, the most important way of thinking that there is about modern survival philosophy. You plan for disaster in the following order of priority. Personal, this is the, the most important, the least important, personal disaster, then localized, then regional, then state, then national, then global. Despite the real possibility of an economic meltdown or catastrophic terrorist attack or some other major global disaster, the most probable disaster for any individual is personal. Loss of a job, loss of a family member, a fire, a localized weather event are the most probable threats to impact any individual. So plan and prepare for those first and then continue to build going forward. So what we do is we say, what is all this shit that could go wrong? For me, my wife, if I'm single, just me, me, my wife, my kids, my dog, just the people in this house would care. And the, my next-door neighbor might care from compassion, but it won't really affect them. What are all those things? Let's make a, make a list. So, okay, let's get all our shit together so that if something like that happens, we're covered. And we do that. Okay. Then we say, okay, what about all the things that could go wrong? That my neighbors up and down the street, one block, two blocks around me, maybe, you know, half the town would care if it happened. What are, what are the, the, the regional disasters, the, the localized disasters that could occur? You know, power outages, storm damage, things like that. Okay, let's get ready for all of those things. Let's do that. And then we say, well, let's, okay, now let's think a little bit bigger. Let's think about regional. What, what could go wrong in my, you know, my, my corner of the state or my third of the state or, you know, whatever it is. Most states, you know, I'll give the pass to people in like Rhode Island or whatever, but most states, you have significant differences and different threats across the borders of the state. South Florida has, you know, definite threats that someone up near the Georgia border on the Atlantic side may not really worry as much about though they'd be similar as well. Because now we're starting to look at, well, are there power plants around us that are nuclear? right? Are there military facilities? Are there, is there a fertilizer production facility? Is there a chemical production facility? These are the things we start looking at when we get to that regional level. And those things have a lot of fail-safes, but they do still fail at times, as we've seen. So let's be prepared for those. 
And you might have found those types of things when you did your localized if you live very close to them. So we, we get prepared for that. Okay. And then we think, well, what about something that was kind of like statewide or multi-state region, you know? So these are the things that might affect you and your, your buddies across the state line one direction or the other. And you start to get really nebulous at that point. To, well, what really is that? And then you say, okay, what about national? So that you're not like, you're, now you're like U.S. economic collapse. Or you're like it's some sort of epidemic or pandemic that hasn't gone global that's mostly hitting the U.S. Or riots in the U.S. that are everywhere, not just where you are. So it's not as easy to get out of Dodge, that type of thing. So you, you then say, okay, well, what's left? And you start to realize at that point, there's not a lot left. There's not a lot I have to do to be as prepared as I can reasonably be, not to be some loon on doomsday preppers or something like that, but as I can reasonably be for that type of a thing. I'm going to have to figure shit out as it goes. I need resources, and I've done that. And then you say, okay, fine. What if it's global? What if it's absolutely global, and it is, you know, from, from one oceans to the other, and it's a global pandemic, or it's an asteroid strike, or global financial meltdown, or, or what have you. Okay, well, what else would you do? And you'll find there's maybe a couple things you might show up, but really you're, you're thinking, if it's that bad, I'm as solidified as I can be. And what I really need to do is think about where I would go if this place doesn't work out, and you've probably done that long before you get there. And it's just a much better way to prep because what most people do is exactly the converse. They hear about something that really scares the shit out of them, a coronal mass ejection, EMP or something like that, and they start freaking out and preparing for that. And then something happens like an ice storm hits and they're, they're without power for a week. And they're not prepared for it because their plan was, I'm going to run away to my bunker in Wyoming. And when your power's out for a week because of an ice storm, you don't run away to your bunker in Wyoming. You just don't. And so they leave huge gaps and huge holes in their preparedness. And, you know, that would be a regional disaster or a, a localized disaster. So what happens when the person that's preparing for the end of the world as we know it ends up and their wife comes home and says, honey, I have cancer? It's a disaster. It's a huge disaster for you. Again, your neighbor doesn't care, maybe with compassion, but not, not in reality, not logistically. What, what good is your bunker in Wyoming? What does, good does your, your five years or ten years worth of MREs do you when, you're, when your soulmate has cancer? If we start preparing from that level and making sure we can take care of things if that goes wrong and move out, then we're not happy when it occurs, but we're, we're as prepared as we could ever be to hear something so awful. To hear your kid has got to go to the hospital and is going to be in there for a few days and we're hoping this works out which actually happened to a listener. And they said, you know what we had? The one thing we had was we had bug-out bags in our vehicles, and they said, we have to go now. And we went now. And we had the things we needed to stay there with them for, for a couple days, and then finally one can break away and go get more resources. That's real shit, guys. You know, I don't make this stuff up. This is what I hear from you. And it just shows that we were on point from the beginning. Understand disaster probability and commonality. And the commonality part is also very important because what, what, what we see with people in the preparedness world is they're preparing for an event. I, I am worried that there will be a financial collapse, so I'm preparing for a financial collapse. I'm pre preparing for a pandemic. I think there's going to be a pandemic or whatever. The commonality is even with the disasters only affect us, it's still down to our survival needs. What you prepare for is to deal without systems of support, not for a specific event. 
Because you can have a pandemic and you're going to have an economic collapse. Okay, if you have a true pandemic, high lethality, high spread rate, lots of people dying in quarantines, you're going to have economic collapse. You get a bad enough economic collapse, you're going to have pandemics of something, at least the flu, because sanitation is going to go downhill, etc. But what's the commonality? You need food, water, shelter, energy, right? Security, and health and sanitation. Those are your commonalities. You're, you're, it's really, they say five survival needs in the woods because they leave out health and sanitation because they figure you can figure out how to take a dump behind a tree, right? And you're not going to stay there forever. But when you are actually trying to survive long term, you have to add in health and sanitation. So you got food and water, shelter. These are wilderness survival tenants, security. And what's the last one in wilderness? Fire. We change, change fire into energy. Because this is what fire provides us in the wilderness. And then we have health and sanitation. If we shore up those areas of our lives, then no matter what goes wrong, we can fulfill our needs. And if you can fulfill your needs, then you can work on your wants. Okay? Where if you can't fulfill your needs, all your wants are out the window. Next one. Green energy is for independence, not for saving polar bears. I, I, I really mean that. Renewable energy is great if you do it in a way that saves you money, short or long term. But your solar panels are not going to save the planet. It's a lie. It's a myth. I'm, I'm tired of discussing it. If you want to promote solar, wind, hydro, etc., the best way to do it is to develop a more cost-effective manner. Fuel-efficient vehicles are also great. Uh, when I started this show, I was driving a 2006 Jetta TDI diesel. It put a lot of hybrids to shame at 44 miles to the gallon. Um, today I drive a great big giant F-350 diesel truck but I don't drive it very often. And if I did a lot of driving, I'd have a fuel-efficient vehicle. I don't have a big truck because I hate the planet, like, like some greenies think. I have a big truck because I have to go get multi-tons of stuff to bring to my farm from a couple of miles down the road a few times a month. And a truck does that, and a freaking Prius doesn't. That's why I have it. If I, if I was driving a lot, I would get a very fuel-efficient vehicle because it's financially intelligent to do so. If my house was designed differently, I probably would have solar panels on it. I, I haven't done that here because it doesn't really make sense for the ROI for me just yet. It, it, it doesn't, but it will. And we're actually getting to a point where we've got enough of everything else that that step makes sense. Okay, And that's the key here, that you phase in what you need and what makes sense. But we do this for a financial return. And there's a lot of people out there selling alternative energy that you're not getting a financial return. You're getting financially taken to the cleaners. You're taking a financial bath. We've had Stephen Harris save a couple people in this audience who are making really stupid decisions with giant payment plans to get the solar panels installed today that would have a 30-year or longer payback period. That is not how we invest in solar. It really isn't. I love renewable energy. I, I, I think that over the next 20 years... We are going to see advances that are going to make it more and more viable. What Tesla is doing with battery alone is, a, alone is a game changer. And it's just the first generation of a new technology. And solar is getting more affordable all the time. It's making more sense all the time. But in a lot of climates, we're better off building a house designed for passive solar gain than putting solar panels on a roof to run our Xboxes or whatever it is we do with electricity. Okay. And, and that's how we have to think about it because this is another place where I see people that are in you know the prepper community spending massive fortunes on solar 
because, well, when the grid goes down, we'll have power. Well, if, if, if what you're actually afraid of really happens, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? I mean, my God, a small generator and 60 gallons of gasoline will get you through most outages, like, a, like you're coasting down a hill on a bicycle. And, and, do, and give you more energy, by the way, than the solar panel array that you spent twenty or $30,000 on. Now, there's places where they make sense. Like if you're going to live off-grid, because you have to, or bringing in grid power would cost more than a solar array, then, yeah, that makes sense. But I, I love these people that have spent all this money on solar, and they live in town. Like these little you know, rehabbed homes. They're like, well, when the power goes off, we'll still be here. What, surrounded by 50,000 people without it? Is that really going to work out? I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying, what does it do for you now? How does it, you know, how does it justify against the first tenant? And if we do this responsibly, we can then basically make the market meet us. See, there's people that build solar panels, and believe it or not, they want you to buy them. So the, if people only buy them, and more people buy them as they get better and less expensive, then they'll keep getting better and less expensive. If everybody just jumps on board and buys them with government subsidies and shit today, then the market stops working because now I'm just producing what people are buying. I don't have to worry about making it better. The more you wait on the market, the more the market has to respond to you. The more the market says, the customer's not stupid, the customer wants more, we have to do more. Green energy is for independence not saving the polar bears. The next one, own land and make it produce. This is the biggest form of true wealth that there is, owning land. I advise people to own land in the country where taxes are low, restrictions are limited. Even if you live in the city, finding and buying and improving land within three to five hours of your primary residence makes a lot of sense. If you can use it to get out of the city at some point, so much the better. That's how I wrote it back then. And, you know, when I wrote this, I knew that I would eventually get to live in my, you know, at that time, bug out location in Arkansas. And I was really hip on living outside of city limits and things like that. And I still am. Now I am. If, there, if, if, if I could, you know, wave my hand and make all the lights turn green and I could make all of the cars get out of my way, I could pull out of my driveway and be in downtown Fort Worth. I'm talking surrounded by skyscrapers in 15 minutes. That's how close to Fort Worth I am. But I'm an unincorporated farm country. I can do anything I want here unless I'm cooking meth in a still outside where the sheriff can see it. I mean, that's literally how it is here. No one can say anything. I've, all my neighbors seem to be fine with my ducks, but if they called anybody, nobody would care. There's nothing they can do. That's the type of property I'm at. I don't have the property taxes as low as I used to. I really don't, you know. But we all have to make compromises. And the reason I'm kind of talking about that is so that you understand, with land ownership, you have to decide what works for you and your family, but then you have to take that land and turn it into something productive for yourself. We already talked about gardening. That's one major way we can make land productive. But if we have a little bit more land, we could do worse then hiring some to come in with a dozer or a bobcat or an excavator, put a couple ponds in and stock them with fish. I mean, just that alone is a food source. It also is surface water. It increases the value of the property. It's a water resource. I mean, just, just that just that one step 
you know, you might have to find a couple acres to make that practical, but many of us can. You have to find a place not loaded with rock like I have, but there's lots of places out there like that. If we just buy a piece of land that's mostly woods, but we can hunt and forage in it, then that land is productive for us. If we have the means or the opportunity, because sometimes it's not means, sometimes it's just opportunity, you know, 50, 60 acres of woodlands with very little gardening and direct active cultivation can, in some climates, be extremely productive with almost no work, basically living like a modern hunter-gatherer. We all have to decide how this works for us. But what we cannot do is have land that doesn't provide for us at all, that's only a liability. And most Americans live in homes that that's exactly how you would describe them. Their, 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 their property is not their biggest asset, it's their biggest liability. And, and due to that, what happens is they trick themselves into thinking that their big mortgage is a good thing. They, they believe that their big mortgage is a good thing. When, you know, I, I, I marveled that I had people telling me my decision to buy my second property in Arkansas at the time was risky. We paid $70,000 for it. The home that I was living in, I paid $120,000 for it. So if you think about this and actually do the, do the math, right? When you do the math on this, that's like buying one house for, well, $190,000. And I had people telling me that buying a second home was risky. They were sitting in homes they paid $250,000 for and really could not afford, where my servicing of those two properties on the debt load was simple. Mainly because the property tax on the place in Arkansas was $219, or $319 a year. So... The payment on that property in Arkansas was less than most people's car payments. And the very person who told me that it was risky was sitting in a house I know they paid about $260 for and had two brand-new SUVs in their driveway that were both financed. And you just marvel at that because, number one, you're in risk like two, two months without a job and you guys can't pay your mortgage. Of losing the house. Your vehicles, by the time you're done servicing the debt on them, will be worth a fraction of what you paid for them. Where real estate either holds its value, goes down a little bit, or goes up significantly. I mean, those are your basic options over time with real estate. Plus, it ha now I have a place that I can go vacation, that I can go to if something goes wrong, and it's I can go hunt, I can go fish there. And this is why I'm looking really hard right now to try to find the right piece of property and the right way to do that again. And I haven't quite figured out how it fits in my life now. And this is the reason I tell you that instead of just saying, oh, just go do it, is to explain that even I have done it successfully in the past. As your life changes, your viewpoint changes, and what you want changes, and your, your resource changes, and what you're willing to do with your resource changes. And your time commitments change. And you start to think, how can I make this fit me today? So we don't act quickly just to act. We act methodically, and we make the right decision. I've said on land, I've said this, I think I just said this yesterday, Jack Spiracle does not pay market value on property. I don't do it. I never have. I've bought multiple properties. I have never paid fair market value on a property yet. I have always paid under market value on a property. I've even done it where I put the offer in that looks like a fair market value, and I just go, that house is not going to appraise. I just know. I just look at it and go, um, that's going to appraise, I did it here, I'm like, that's going to appraise at like 205, 210. Appraisal came in at 200. Why? Because there were too many things that were jacked up here. 
There were too many things that were wrong. The house showed like crap, even though it had all the potential. And the fair market value was about what they were asking. They wanted $230. We said, fine, we'll do $225. They said, no. We said, okay, fine, we'll leave. They said, oh, we'll take $225. Okay, fine. Appraisal comes in at $200. Uh, so can you guys come up with $25,000 extra? Oh, no. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You guys are screwed now. You guys are screwed. Your property just appraised. And for the next year, if, if you take it, delist it, and relist it, and it goes up, and anybody gives you an offer again, the first thing an appraiser is going to do is pull any appraisers for your, for your area within the last six months, and your own appraisal is going to show up, and they're not going to alter it by $30,000. Unless you put $30,000 in your house and fix it. So no, we're not doing that. And we eventually compromised because we knew we were so far undervalued. Those of you who have been here know this, how far undervalued that was. We came up with an extra five grand. We gave them 205. If I sold this property today, it would sell for over $300,000. And we have maybe 30 into it. That's... That's how you handle land and make it produce. It's not just direct output, but how do you buy smart so that if you do sell it, if you exercise your exit strategy, you actually capitalize on your exit strategy and make money. And you can start out by never paying more for a property. In fact, never pay what a property is worth for a property if you can help it. Always try to pay a little bit less. That gives you a one month of fixing what's wrong exit strategy. Within one month, you could exit and be okay. How many people do that? Good news for you is not many. Buy land, make it produce. Think like the homesteaders of old. People did not come to this country, folks, because we were free or because of our flag or, or something like that in the 1800s. They came here mostly because you could own land in this country when owning land in other countries for the common folk was still not even, not even an option. I mean, when we were in like the early 18 through middle 1800s, there was the feudal system. The, the, the you know the, the 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 remnants of the feudal system was still going on through much of Europe. You didn't. John Farmer didn't just go out and get 40 acres. It didn't work that way. But you could come here and do it. And they knew that that land had wealth and could be generational wealth. That's how we need to be thinking today. Own land, make it produce. Next one. Utilize pragmatic preparations. Um, this is the stuff that everybody doesn't even think about. When you talk about it, they don't even think it's modern, they don't think it's survivalism or prepping or anything. And it's the most fundamental prepping. And it's actually the way, a lot of times, to reach the people that don't want to be preppers, that think prepping's crazy talk. In addition to food and water and other common survival stores, use common sense methods of hedging against disaster. Pragmatic things like cash emergency funds, good insurance, and secondary income streams. Those are things that people think of as like being in the system. These types of protections can make your life a lot less miserable when something goes wrong. Make them part of your planning. I have insured almost everything in my life that's of value to me, whether it's through an insurance product or whether through its personal action. So I don't have food insurance from State Farm. I have food insurance care of Jack Spearco. I've self-insured. But I'm not going to self-insure my house So I have State Farm for my house. If my house burns down, State Farm pays the bill. Now, most people have home insurance, but they don't really get a good insurance agent and go over their life and figure out where their holes are. And you have to be careful because what does that agent want to do? They want to sell you as much insurance as they can. That's their job. That's how they make their money. So they'll always tell you you need more insurance. You have to you know, balance that 
with what you think you really need. But the other side of it, the, the, the converse side of it is they can help you see what you don't have. I remember when I was a very young, arrogant kid. And uh, I bought my first you know, new vehicle. And I needed to get full coverage. And I found this guy that was open on like a Saturday when I needed to get it done so I could go ahead and get the vehicle. And um, he said, well, what about towing? And I'm like, I've got roadside assistance and, you know, I've got a, basically a loan, like my, my purchase on the truck was great. If it broke down, they had to give me a loaner vehicle. And, you know, he's like, but towing, like, well, what if your car gets stuck in the mud? What if it breaks down, you know, on, on the side of the road? And, you know, what kind of, so we went over it and what it turned out was that the roadside assistance that came with my vehicle basically paid for the truck to come and pick it up and go like two miles. And then, Anything past that, I was on the hook for. So we wrote the coverage to only cover that, that additional cost. And it was like two bucks a month. That's just one example I can remember from a very long time ago. It wasn't that big a deal. It never paid off in a big way. But what it did is it opened my mind that an insurance agent could show you those things because many times the holes are cheap to fill. And the, the cost of not filling the hole when something does go wrong can be very high. So we have to use these pragmatic preparations as well. Um, cash emergency fund. I, I can't believe that most Americans don't keep a cash emergency fund. This does not mean you have a savings account with money in the bank. This means that somewhere in your home, squirreled away, is a few hundred to a few thousand dollars in small bills. Tens and twenties, fives, maybe a few fifties and a few hundreds. I mean, there are times when you just can't get to electronic funds. Things do go wrong. Things do break. And there's a certain security in saying, well, at least I have this. So all of those things really make a lot of sense. And they can make you a lot less miserable when something goes wrong. So, so don't overlook those. The next one is have a means of defense. Um, I mean, obviously, I am a huge supporter of the right to keep and bear arms. I see the Second Amendment not as the representation of that right, but the guarantee of that right for now in our country. Because I believe that right is not dependent on the Constitution. Uh, it's not dependent on the Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment. Um, I believe that is what protects it from those who would deny that right. But I also believe that I have a right to live. Uh, I believe I have a right to free speech. And I don't believe that the, that the Constitution gives me the right to free speech. I believe my right to free speech predates the Constitution as a sentient being. The Constitution exists to protect it. So I, I often focus on guns because guns are the great equalizer. You show me a 118-pound woman that knows how to use a compact Glock and a 200-pound man that means to rape her, and her being trained, and I'm going to show you a 200-pound man with a 9-millimeter hole in the center of his skull, which is what he deserves. It's the great equalizer. It's also not perfect as far as being okay for any and all situations and solutions. It, it really isn't. There's, there's, there's times when it doesn't work. There's Some of you live in places where you can't own a gun. So that's why I didn't say, you know, own a gun and learn how to use it. Have a means of defense. Have multiple means of defense. I believe in your home you should have as many means of defense and in many locations as possible, and you should have the mental wherewithal to determine what is a defensive tool 
before you need it to be a defensive tool. Um, we have um, pepper spray strategically placed at different locations of the house where if you didn't know where it was, you'd probably never find it. I'm not saying if somebody came in and specifically searched for it, they wouldn't find it. But if you just came in and spent you know, a day at my home, we, we served you breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we drank beers, we swam in the pool, you'd never know where it was, but I know where it is. And if you end up in a situation where someone is a threat to you and for whatever reason you don't have access to your gun or you don't feel it's that level of threat, then, hey, being blind slows you down. Um, you know, I've heard the old scenario of the, the police recommend using wasp and hornet spray instead of uh, mace or pepper spray. It's not true. It actually would be illegal for you to specifically store wasp and hornet spray. Uh, it would actually violate federal law because you would use it as per its labeling in a manner inconsistent with its labeling. So if somebody tried to break in your door and you hit him in the face with wasp and hornet spray and you told the police, I keep this here so that if this happens, I can do this, um, then, you know, you might be subject to prosecution. You certainly would be considered uh, vulnerable to civil litigation by the guy whose eyes you may have really jacked up beyond what pepper spray does, which is designed for that purpose. But if you just happen to have it there because there was some hornets building a nest on your eve and you just happen to pick it up because the son of a bitch is trying to get in your house, well, tough shit. So a lot of times it means of defense is also knowing how to describe your implementation and use of that defense. But here's why I believe in multiple options. Just one example. Years and years ago, we were taking a walk um, in Arkansas. We went by one of the neighbor's houses, and they had this pit bull mix. And she was a bitch, man. And I don't just mean in the literal sense. I mean the figurative sense, too. And this dog came at us, and she laid down on the ground, and this dog meant to bite. And I had a 9mm on me. And I had my right hand on that 9mm. And in a quarter of a second, I could have put a hole in her head. And in my other hand, I had reached and grabbed out a small canister of pepper spray. And I pointed the pepper spray, not at her, right in front of her, about a quarter inch in front of her nose, and I went squirt, just that much. And that dog inhaled that, and her ears peeled back, and she ran away. And she also didn't come at us fully because I stood there with such confidence because I'm like, you're going to get a face full of pepper spray and a body full of holes. So I wasn't apprehensive at all. I was able to stand my ground against that dog. And it was a much easier conversation with the neighbor to say, dude, you know what? Your dog, you need to control your dog because she threatened to bite me, and uh, I hit her in the nose with a little pepper spray. And uh, she was very close to getting a hole in her head. That was a much easier conversation than, hey, man, here's your dog. I just shot her because she tried to bite me. I don't want to hurt somebody's dog. I certainly don't want to hurt a human being more than necessary for the given situation. But... I'm also prepared to fill you full of holes if I have to. If I have somebody trying to break in this house in the dark, the way I see it is the whole property is fenced. You've already violated the space of the property by being on the fenced property. Now you're trying to get into my home. It's dark out. My dogs are upset. My wife isn't here. I've got people to protect. If you didn't want a dirt nap, you shouldn't have come here. And I have the training and the means to use it. And I won't apologize for it. And if we had more people like me in America, we'd have less crime in America. I promise you. I'll promise you right now. If you interview criminals that do things like break in, that rape, that murder, if you ask them what is the biggest thing they fear, it's not a cop. 
It's an armed citizen prepared to use what they're armed with. This also includes things like training. I think everybody should be trained in some level of martial arts. And most people won't be. That's also good for you. That's also good for you. And I believe that the best martial arts training is used by not looking like a martial artist. That if there is some type of confrontation, you remain calm, you remain in command, you remain in control, but you don't go into a fighting posture, right? You don't reveal what your weapon is before you have to use it. And then you train yourself to act without even thinking. So that when something happens, it's not some bullshit move you learned in a kata. It's a response, and it's using the attacker's aggression against themselves. And a lot of times that is just enough to disengage, to break the attack, so that you can deploy a superior weapon, like a handgun, or so you can just get the hell out of dodge. Run. But you have to have, I should actually change this from have a means of defense to have multiple means of defenses and know how to use them. Because if you won't defend yourself, who is going to? This is the problem in America, guys. We have people thinking, well, there's, the police will do that or whatever. You know, no one gives a shit about you as much as you. That's, I mean, we are all fundamentally selfish. And, and people say, well, I'm not selfish. I'm giving. I care about others. Because that's what you want. Because that's what you want. You know, I die for my kids. Well, first of all, maybe you should live for them, right? If you care enough to die for somebody, you should care enough to live for them. Right up until dying is the only option. Just get that straight in your head. But if you, when you say, well, I'll, you know, I'll put my kids before myself, so I'm not selfish. No, your kids are more important to you, so you put your self-interest, which is them, above yourself and others. In other words, the things that are most important to you are not the most important things to anybody else in the world except maybe your spouse and your kids or your parents. That's it. It ends there. When, it, when a cop gets a call that somebody's breaking in your house, they very much want to get there, they very much want to save your life, and they very much want to apprehend a suspect. They very much want it. I mean, a lot. You want it more, so freaking act like it. We become a bunch of wussified people in this country that are not willing to defend ourselves and not willing to defend others. When we have a means of defense and the training to use it, we start behaving a lot more boldly and the cowards that harm others, the cowards that initiate aggression, they do it less. The next, have full documentation for any disaster need. I've done whole shows on this. But you basically need to have a documentation package that gives you all the information you would need about your financial information, where you can meet up with other family members, all the resources that are around you, all your account numbers, all your insurance policy information, all of that stuff. And anything that is uh, something you don't want getting into the wrong hands, use some sort of simple number encryption. You can use a one-off number encryption, a two-off number encryption. That just means you change the numbers by two. So let's say if you do two-off number encryption, you know what it is, and the number you put down was one, two, three, right? You, you would put three, four, five. Now, that's not going to hold up against NSA or something like that, but somebody that's a, 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 you know, an identity thief or something, they're not going to figure that out. And you, you develop all of that on a computer, but you print out hard copies. And that way, when you have to update it or add to it or amend it, you just print out the new sections. You get a three-ring binder. You insert it into that. You keep one in each vehicle and one in the house, period, minimum. 
And that way, when your 16-year-old daughter borrows the car and is two towns over, as they say, up in the Midwest, right, and is, is hanging out, and all of a sudden there's actually a major disaster and there's a call for evacuation, and it does not make sense in any way for her to come home first, and you are going to meet her, and she's on the cell phone with you flipping out, going crazy because she's scared, and nothing like this has ever happened before, you say, open your package, pull it out from under the thing, turn to page 7, see where that, 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 that route is, it's route A, you see that, you see the first place on there, one, okay, you're going to go there, you're going to stay there, and we're going to meet you there, and all of a sudden, you are in control so she can control herself. Without that, you're screwed. Well, she can use a map app because we can we can count on that working. And you go through this with 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 your 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 family, so they would know what to do, even if they have limited or no communications. Where would be the first place we would go based on these different scenarios? That seems extreme. Is it extreme for you to go over with your family if there's a fire in the middle of the night? Here's the ways out of the house, and here's where we meet up. Then why the hell is it extreme to go over with your family if an evacuation order is given and you're away from home in this direction, then go here and we'll meet you there? Isn't it the same thing? How retarded as a society have we become that we think that's an extreme thing to do? I grew up with being told on all the kids' shows, you should have a fire evacuation plan. Talk to your parents about it. And then having an evacuation plan that is greater than your home is extreme? My God, we have lost our minds. We have got to have that documentation package put together. That should include things like if there was a tree on your car and you needed it removed, who would you call to get the tree off your car? And, you know, the big burly man goes, I got my own chainsaw. I don't need that shit. I'll cut it off. What if the tree fell on your car through the window of your house in the middle of the night and hit you in the face and you're seriously injured and you can't do it, and now you're expecting your wife to do it while she's trying to take care of you. Now, if a lot of trees came down, do you know what's going to happen as far as recovery? The people that make the calls first get service first. So maybe you have three or four different tree places. Have multiple places, hotels identified, that are far enough out that you think they would be a reasonable short-term evacuation. You're not going to bug out to a hotel for a month. I understand that. I get that. But I'll give you another example. When I was a little kid, probably 10 years old, we lived in apartments in Jacksonville, Florida, on a road called Edenfield Road. You can actually look this place up if you want to. I don't know what departments are called now, but they were called Silver Tree back then. And you can look that up on, on Google Earth. You can find Edenfield Road in Jacksonville, Florida. If you look on the right side of Edenfield Road or the, what would it be, the east side of Edenfield Road, you'll see an apartment complex with like a, a canal system in it. And if you go a little down from there, you'll see on the same side of the road a plant, an industrial plant. And across from that industrial plant and a little further down is another big apartment complex. That was the apartment complex I lived in. That industrial plant is actually a sewer treatment plant that uses chlorine. And uh, they had a major chlorine leak. So about 11 o'clock at night. Ladies and gentlemen, got to get your stuff together and get out of here. Where do we go? Well, we don't know. Right now we've called a safe limit, the end of the road. Uh, that's where you at least have to go, but it's mandatory evacuation. We don't know how long this is going to take. Uh, this is a serious situation. You have to go now. The whole apartment complex evacuated. And the other one I talked about, the canals, those guys and a few other places 
and people just parked two miles away, all over the place, waiting until they were told they could go home. And in this case, it was about three hours. They got everything under control. They took some safety measurements, and they came and they said, everybody can go home. We had no plan. None. We didn't know what to do. We also didn't think it was serious enough to really worry about it. It seemed like something that would pass. And what they were really concerned with is a possible explosion more than just exposure to the gas. But that's just one example. Now, what if you had something like that happen, and it ends up being a two- to three-day event, and you don't just have family you can go stay with? How many? How, how fast do you think hotels fill up? So if you have three evacuation plans in your documentation package, which is what I recommend, three minimum in three three routes to three different destinations, so nine routes. And if you have hotels along those routes you've predetermined in their contact information in your documentation package, while one person's driving, the other person's making a reservation. That doesn't sound like survivalism. When you do survivalism right, it doesn't sound like survivalism. Smart survivalism is avoiding survival situations, not getting through them. You can either be the firefighter or the fire marshal. The fire marshal tries to keep the fire from happening. It's a much better approach. Still knows how to put it out when it happens. So that's how you have to take this tenant. And if you do it that way, you start to really develop yourself a plan. And you end up... This actually becomes the crux of a lot of your other planning. You start to find all the holes in your plans. And again, uh, I'll actually find the link on the documentation package show and put it in today's show notes because it's, it's really fantastic. Um, it's one of the best ones I've ever done, and it's way too deep to go into further here. You know, We're already going to be at a 90-minute show today, I think, by the time we're done. But what it does is it gives you command and control of the situation, which most people do not have. When you see these people freaking out, I have no way to reach my loved ones or whatever, a lot of times because you know their cell phone doesn't work and they don't know any other way to reach them. You know, Or what if their cell phone was lost in a disaster or damaged or something like that? We live out of our cell phones. They're a great tool. Don't stop using it. Just don't rely on it alone. The last and, and most fundamental one, though, is des- develop your own plan. Your personal philosophy is more important to you than mine. You are the master of your own life. And if you don't agree with my views, great. Define, understand, and implement your own. The biggest thing you can do is understand that you are in control of your life and that what you do matters. Those two factors have the greatest impact on individual survival across every demographic you can imagine. I've always explained this with cancer doctors, and people wonder like how that works. Well, I've talked to oncologists, uh, and they have said the following. When I have two patients that have the same cancer and the same prognosis and the same treatment, the one that's a pain in the ass generally is the one that breaks the odds and survives. Even if they decide to do the exact same course of treatment, the one that's like, why are we doing this? How are we doing this? Are there any other options? And just like, wears me out. And I'm saying, like, this is the only thing I can do for you. This is the only hope we have. But the person that's a pain in the ass about it generally survives at a higher rate than the person that just accepts it passively. And the only way that I've been able to rationalize that, and every doctor that I've ever talked about and confirmed this with, has agreed with me to at least a degree that it's because they know that they are in control of their life. And because of that, they fight harder, they work harder, and they believe more in themselves. And that gives them this little bit of an edge that can be the difference between getting through an aggressive, difficult disease in treatment and not doing it. If that's true about cancer, why wouldn't it be true about everything else? 
There are people that lose a job and it destroys their lives forever. And there's people that lose a job and a week later they're better off than they ever were. And both of them have the same basic professional background. Live in similar places with similar opportunities. And both were pretty good at what they were doing, but for one reason or another, they just weren't able to keep doing it. Why do you, and, and, and you know, would have pretty much the same background? Why do you think one just recovers so easily and the other maybe never recovers and ends up homeless on the street even? Because the one that doesn't recover kind of fell into what made them comfortable, never really believed that they deserved it, and just thought they were lucky. And because of that, when it was taken away from them, and all of the, the things they were paying for with it was you know no longer could be serviced, and began to fall in under them, and they become depressed, they just don't recover. I watched my best friend in the world almost do this to himself. I actually did a show on that. I can't remember what it was called, but I talked about him being in New York. This guy I was serving the military with, and I basically took him on a three-day, full-on Jack Spirico in-your-ass recovery. Took him up to Arkansas before we lived up there, and basically gave him three days of beating the shit out of him verbally, tell him to get his shit together. And a week later, he calls me and says, "I got a great job." I said, "No shit, no shit." But I, I mean, I knew this guy. He was at the edge of giving up because he didn't know what to do. And he was sent out the door with 90 days of freaking severance pay. Plus unemployment. You gotta be kidding me, you're worried. In a high demand field, but because he never really believed that he deserved what he had. He never really felt that he earned it. The concept that he could just go replicate it quick enough to backfill his life. I mean, I even told this guy, I have so much confidence in you. That I'm in a place in my life now. Where if you don't have a job in three months, I'll pay your salary for the fourth month. So you just don't have to worry about it. Now go get your shit together. He needed somebody to tell him that. I think what he was lucky about, he had somebody like me in his life to tell him that. He didn't understand that what he did really mattered anymore. He be, and that's not who this guy was back when we served in the military together. He'd lost it. So that's the thing. We can lose this concept that we are in control of our own destiny and our own lives. We can lose the boldness as we mature. Now, we should lose the irresponsibility, the reckless risk-taking. The problem is a lot of times along with that, we also lose the boldness. We lose what made us special as younger people. And some of these younger people coming up now, they don't even have it because we've beaten it out of them. The system's beaten it out of them. But it's still there. It's still that spark. And this is the big reason you have to develop your own plan. If I, instead of coming out with a philosophy, came out with a plan, do A, then do B, then do C, then do D, then do E, you would do every single thing in that plan So the first one you got to that you didn't think would work for you or you didn't want to do. And then when you didn't do that one, you'd fall off the wagon and you wouldn't do anything else and you'd quit. And you'd become a fallout, a fallout prepper. We had lots of fallout preppers around Y2K. That was a good time to buy shit. You know, January, February, March of 2001, man, those were great times to be buying used stuff. Generators, all kinds of stuff. Because people got crazy about it, right? They were following somebody else's plan instead of their own plan. It's like exercise and diet, too. 
you know, we all know we should eat well, we should, we should, you know, exercise, we should be active and stuff like that. And we know we can get sick and we can, we can get, we can get cardiovascular disease, we can die if we don't take care of ourselves. So why doesn't everybody at least take rudimentary care of themselves? Because it doesn't happen in a day or a week or a month or a year. That's why. If you walked out your door and was talking to a neighbor, And his neighbor, you know, neighbor you didn't really know, come walking up the street, and he just fell over and died. And you said, well, what, what, what? And the guy just goes, oh, he's dead. And you went, well, he's dead? How'd he die? He goes, he didn't exercise today. I mean, you'd be down there doing push-ups now, right? Well, I'm not going to die, right? Because it would be, you would see the importance of it. But because it's something that you get away without doing for so long, you become complacent in it. And the only way that, see, this is why I think so many people pay, fail in diet and exercise plans. You're trying to follow somebody else's plan. People ask me which plan works. They all work. They all work. I mean, maybe a few of them don't. But in general, if you balance caloric intake against caloric burn and eat reasonably healthy in any exercise niche, in any dietary niche, you'll get into better shape. But if you don't believe in it, if you don't take control of it, if you don't take ownership of it, then you'll do it only as long as it works really, really well and you're feeling okay with it. And eventually you slide off and next thing you know, you're putting weight back on, you're becoming unhealthy again, you're falling into bad habits again. It's the same with substance abuse. It's the same with drug abuse, alcohol abuse. It's the same with everything in life. And, and all a failure to prepare is, is another lifestyle disease, basically. It's an irrational way for a human being to behave. A squirrel is intelligent enough to stick a nut away. A freaking ant has enough intelligence to put food in their, in their nest. We are one of the few creatures on the planet that truly lives hand to mouth that doesn't have to. There's many creatures that do, but they don't really, they don't really have a choice. The grasshopper can't become an ant. Even though I use the grasshopper and ant story to explain preparedness. The, the grasshopper is a grasshopper. Its nature is to be a grasshopper. It's only designed to live for a season. It's born in the spring. It dies in the fall. That's what it does. It cannot change. It doesn't have a choice. You do. Be an ant, not a grasshopper. So that's the 12 planks of modern survivalism, and I don't think they've really changed that much. In fact, as I said, I listened to episode one of the Survival Podcast yesterday, and for... All of the people that said this show has really changed either for the better or worse over the years, but it's different. I think we cover more stuff. I think we spend more time on certain things. I think we have different segments. But in the end, I think the show is exactly the same. I think the 12 tenants are exactly the same, and I think they work just as good in 2016 for designing your life as they did in 2008. And I hope you enjoyed revisiting them with me today. And thank you to all of you who have supported me over these eight years. Thank you to all of you who voted. And, and for all of you that will vote in the next coming uh, shows, your participation helps me know that I'm doing the right thing for you. And thank you to everybody, period, who's ever listened to this show. Um, you know, this is the point where I point out, you know, the member support brigade, you can support the show. And I had somebody email me today and said, basically, I tried to renew, but it won't let me. I said, well, you can't renew because your, your account doesn't renew until December, and you'd be paying double. Don't do that. And they said, oh, I feel better now. I felt guilty for listening for free. I thought my account had expired. I don't feel guilty for listening for free. This is what I do. There's maybe 10% of the listeners are members, and that's okay. That's okay. Listen and share my show. 
with other people. That, that's what I really ask for most. But I do appreciate the support. And, again, because we've been doing this eight years, I do have a sale running now, half off of the MSB, 25 bucks for your first year of MSB, new members and expired accounts only. It's not because I won't let you renew early. It's because the system and PayPal and all that stuff, I can't do it. If I could set it up, trust me, I'd be happy to, but I can't. But if your account's either expired or you don't have an account yet, you can join the MSB right now for $25 for your first year. The discount code is HEAT. There's a post on the blog that explains everything. Yes, you can do it with silver. Yes, you can do it with cash by mail. Yes, yes, yes. Okay? So um, I, I really would appreciate you guys that are not members if you consider becoming a member. But, by God, don't feel guilty because you are not in a place to be a member and you listen every day. Just do me the favor and tell people. The other thing that you can do, is you can shop at tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop on Amazon anyway. And I've added a new feature to the blog today where I actually publish a little article on the item that I'm recommending for the day. So if you go to tspaz.com, it'll redirect you to the item of the day. You can always do that. That's not going to change. What has changed is on the blog there'll be an article that day with TSP's, today's TSP Amazon article of the day. I'm not normally going to tell you what it is on the air. I will today. It is the Shard uh, Smart Pressure Canner and Cooker. It's a great product for storing up all those things out of the garden and you know storing meat without a deep freezer and stuff like that because you can pressure can with it. And unlike the, um, the Power Pressure Cooker XL, which was the one I recommended when it came out, you can actually do quart versus pint jars. In fact, you can do four quart jars, six pint jars, eight jelly jars, or ten half pint jars in one batch. And it's a great canner. But there'll be something different every day. Now, here's what I'm doing that I think is cool. I am tagging, because this is a blog, right? That's TSP is a blog. And I am tagging all of these with Amazon item of the day, which means in the future when there's 50, 100 of them, whatever, you'll just be able to click on that tag in the tag cloud and see all of them. So it'll catalog them so we won't lose them. So that's why I decided to start doing a quick blog post. I decided this morning, well, let's see how fast I can do this. And it takes me about a minute to reconfigure the link. And it took me three minutes, four minutes to write the article and throw a picture in there. So I thought if I can do it in less than five minutes a day, it's probably worth doing as long as people like it. People seem to dig it so far. So TSP item of the day at TSPAS. And remember, if you are not interested in the TSP item of the day, that's fine. This is just so you can, it's just a fun thing just to see what I and other members of the audience are using in our lives. These are all things that are either in my home or I've found because other members have purchased them. And then I've reviewed them, and they've passed muster, so to speak. But if you're going to buy stuff on Amazon, just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z dot com, and then search for whatever you want. Buy whatever you were going to buy anyway, and you help support our show. And uh, I really would appreciate that as well from you guys. Uh, next up, remember you can also support the, uh, the entire community by shopping in our business directory to find other people to do business with. Today's supporter of the business directory is Caleb Schuster Photography. They provide portrait, wedding, and event photography in and around Ohio. You can get in touch with Caleb through his listing in the TSP business directory, Caleb Schuster Photography. I, I love seeing all these different businesses. Remember, you can always jump right to the business directory just by going to tspbiz.com. It'll redirect you there. So with that, let's talk about our closing song today. Um, I don't have a big message in this song. I just always love this song. I really have. It's by Christopher Cross, and it's called Ride Like the Wind. And there's no special message in or anything, because it's basically the story of an outlaw running to Mexico. It is what it says it is. It's not got any hidden messages or allegories in it or something like that. But I always love this song. Something I think in like 1980, 
And I grew up with, you know, this is one of the songs that was on the radio all the time and all. I just like it. It just sounds great. And uh, then in the 90s, I believe it was, a movie came out called Dickie Roberts with David Spade in it. So that's what I'll kind of talk about here just for fun at the end of the show today is that movie. Um, because there was actually a big life lesson in it, but there was also from the one guy that was really like, you know, the antagonist in it, the, the father of the family that Dickie goes to live with, uh, that's really just a jerk and he ends up running away with Dickie's girlfriend. Um, he's really an ass. But he has this one moment, he has this very teachable event that he talks about in that movie. And he says that there, he was at this shop run by a Navajo Indian. And he looks, and in the back of the shop, there's a vase. And the vase is $20. And when he goes to the front of the shop, sitting right next to the counter, is the same vase for $40. So he asks this Indian, why is this same vase, $40 here and $20 back there? He said, because there's people that want to pay $20 for that vase, and there's people that want to pay $40 for that vase, and they're both my customers. That was the only intelligent thing the man said, and it was somebody else's words. There's a lesson there in business, though. There are people that want to pay more and people that want to pay less, and they're both your customers. So you can actually run a business with that in mind. And you have to think about which one do you serve, which one do you serve more. So that's part of what I thought about it. The other thing I want to point out is David Spade, to me, until this movie came out, I always looked at David Spade like salt. What the hell does that mean? David Spade was always like he had little bit parts, and like there was a sitcom called Spin City or something like that, and he was never really that like the main character. He was like this little side character. And I always thought of him like salt. Like you wouldn't eat a plate of salt, but salt goes well on your food. He was he did a great job in that movie. If you have kids especially, it's a great movie to watch. Um, and the concept is he's a child star that's become, you know, defunct and no one cares about him anymore. Uh, and he's blown all his money and he's trying to get back into movies and he wants to do a movie. And the director, as Rob Reiner tells him, that he doesn't quite appear human and that this, this is a very human character. And because he never had a childhood. So he hires, he sells his memoirs, which is his only thing he has left uh, to make money with. And he, he hires a family to treat him like a child. And there's, there's some great scenes. That one, he starts out, they have him in a great big baby basket. He's a small guy, so he fits. And the lady's pushing him on the sidewalk, and the neighbor says, aren't you a bit big? for the stroller, and he looks at her and says, aren't you a bit big for the sidewalk? And then there's the devil rabbit, but I won't tell you about the devil rabbit because it'll ruin for you if you've never seen it. But in this, he finds himself, and he ends up being more a father to these two children than their actual father has been, and he teaches the little girl a routine so she can try out for cheerleading, and this is the song she does a routine for. And so that's why it made me think of the movie. But it's a cool movie. It's a great song. I hope you enjoyed today's Blast from the Past. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.